We are studying the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. Um, if you'd like a sermon outline or to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand or ushers, we'd be happy to help you. If you have a Bible, uh, please turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. We'll finish this chapter today. Many of you probably know I'm the oldest in my family, uh, followed by my brother and four younger sisters. Um, Let me tell you, growing up, we had a whole lot of fun, sometimes uh, to my parents' dismay. Uh, One of the things we, my brother and I, love to do is hold court for our four sisters, judging them. When they did something we didn't like, we'd haul them into a mock court in a room in our house, especially when our parents were out and we were supposed to watch the kids here. Well, I was the judge holding the gavel, and my brother was the prosecuting attorney. And we'd bring the sister in to stand trial before us. And without fail, she was convicted and condemned to face the consequences my brother and I thought appropriate. I will not tell you what those sentences were, so no child gets any ideas. <laughs> I will say, all my sisters survived and are alive to this day. Now, the passage we've been focused on in Mark chapter 14 deals with Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, which I think was a kangaroo court, just like my brother and I had our sisters come to. Uh, They uh, arrested, tried, and convicted Jesus when it should have been thrown out completely without any witnesses. Today we're going to take another look at Jesus' trial, gain a few more insights. There's so much here. Uh, I want to look at it one more time. And if you want to follow along as I read this, Mark 14, 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they weren't finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him. Their testimony was not consistent Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up, came forward, questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, and he did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and say to him, prophesy. The officers received him with slaps in the face. 
So before we finish this, the first thing I need to do, since it was two weeks ago we looked at this, I need to review some of the main things we talked about the last time. First, we're going to look at Jesus on trial. Then we're going to look at how Jesus is condemned to die. And finally, we'll consider some lessons from the judgment seat. First, Jesus is on trial. So Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council in Israel, composed of 70 uh, men from representatives from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. And the high priest is kind of the uh, Supreme Court judge, the main judge of their group. Uh, the main accusation they, they had against Jesus uh, was that he called for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. They were looking for witnesses to substantiate that. They needed two, at least two witnesses or they couldn't proceed with the trial. Um, and the uh, threatening the temple was a very serious crime in Israel and could result in the death penalty uh, as uh, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah found out. Uh, Jeremiah once prophesied that the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. To the people in his day, he was seized, arrested, and stood before the royal court as a criminal deserving death to prophesy that. Let me read it. Jeremiah 26, 5 to 9. Jeremiah says, listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I've been sending to you again and again, but you've not listened. Then I will make this house like Shiloh. In this city, I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. That's the temple. And when Jeremiah finished speaking, all the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and prophets and all the people seized him, saying, you must die. This was a serious crime in Israel. Jesus knew it, but they didn't get their testimony right. One point, Jesus did talk about the temple being destroyed, if you remember. But the witnesses heard him say, I will destroy this temple. But actually, John tells us he was actually talking about the temple of his own body, as we read in Gospel of John chapter 2, 18 to 21. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us for your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. Even though the Sanhedrin sought witnesses to accuse Jesus, text says the Sanhedrin failed. They were, some were given false testimony. Their testimonies didn't even agree. This case should have been thrown out that we talked about last time. The Sanhedrin, though, was so frustrated trying to find these witnesses that the high priest stepped in, put Jesus on the witness stand, and uh, high priest asked Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, i got to tell you, what's interesting here is actually the Greek text has the high priest asked the question this way. You are the Christ, the son of the blessed one? What does that mean? The high priest unknowingly acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. You are the Christ. Jesus' response was absolutely astonishing and way beyond what he was asked. When the high priest asked if he was the Messiah, Jesus said, I am. Point blank. He's on the witness stand. 
But he doesn't stop there, as we talked about. He goes on to identify himself as the Son of Man. A reference from Daniel chapter 7, which everybody there would have been familiar with. And in that vision in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth and through the clouds of heaven to judge the world. He's on the throne. Jesus saying that he will come to the earth at the end of time in the Shekinah glory of God to judge the earth. And with this statement that Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the judge of all the earth, when he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of Man, the response of the Sanhedrin was explosive. High priest tore his robes, accused Jesus of blasphemy. They knew what he was saying. <laughs> they didn't miss it. He's claiming to be Yahweh, God. He's claiming to be the judge of all the world. And uh, he, they accused him right away of blasphemy. And some spit on him, blindfolded him, began to beat him with their fists, slap him in the face. And the whole Sanhedrin at this point condemned him to be worthy of death. <clears throat> so that, uh, that's our little review. Ironically, while the Sanhedrin mocks Jesus, they said, prophesy, prophesy. Mocks Jesus for his ability to prophesy back in Mark chapter 10. Ironically, Jesus prophesied that the Sanhedrin would condemn him to death. Mark 10, if you remember, 32 to 34, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of his disciples. They were amazed. Those who followed were fearful. Again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. Three days, he'll rise again. Jesus is forcing us here to see his intended paradox to the great reversal we see in the gospel message itself. You see, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is the judge of all the world who is now being judged. He should be in the judgment seat. We should be the ones on trial. That's the gospel in, the, in a nutshell. Jesus, the innocent son of God, was judged and condemned instead of us, guilty sinners. God became our substitute, offering himself to stand in the place of his judgment on our behalf. That's the gospel. To see a picture of what's happening here, though, I was struck uh, by a parallel in the scripture. Uh, I'd like us to look at one other place in the Bible where God was put on trial. See what happens. It's in Exodus chapter 17. Remember, the children have come out of Israel, uh, Egypt. Uh, they're... Uh, Traveling in stages in the wilderness now, it's hot and dry, and they reach a point where they can't find any water, and they're thirsty, and here's what happens. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. 
Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Here's what's happening. In essence, they are charging God with criminal negligence. You brought us out of Egypt to take us to the promised land. You're not taking care of us. We've got no water. Criminal negligence. Hmm. Actually, if you read the passage, Moses is afraid of what's happening. <laughs> they are ready to kill. Um, he, it actually says he's afraid they're going to stone him. And uh, Moses calls out to God, and here's how God answers Moses. Nexus 17, 5 and 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, okay, I want you to pass before the people and take some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff, your rod, with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it so the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. All right, you've got to get this picture. This is so interesting, fascinating. God comes to Moses and says, okay, I hear what they're saying. They're accusing me of criminal negligence, not taking care of them properly. Uh, I want you to have the people assemble together at this rock. And I want you to bring your rod, your staff. Well, Moses' staff or his rod means that there's going to be a trial. The staff was a symbol of God's justice, power, and judgment. The staff of Moses was used to judge Egypt with the ten plagues. The rod is what judges held in trials. Authority, power, judgment, justice. And Moses is probably thinking, oh boy, God is going to have a trial and these people are going to get it. Murmuring and complaining. But when they get to the rock, God amazingly says, he is going to stand on the rock and these, before the people. This is unprecedented in the Bible. Up to this point, there's no place where God ever stands before people. The people always stand before him. God says, I'm going to stand before the people on the rock. You take that rod and strike the rock. Strike the place where I'm standing. Moses thought, those grumbling murmurers deserve to be smitten by God. Instead, God is smitten, and out comes living water. Whoa. This is a huge, huge, huge picture of Jesus, actually. Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10.4. He said that rock was Christ. 
Listen to this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay. I hope you get it. God himself took the place of our judgment. So some lessons from the judgment seat. First, we probably think the children of Israel, how awful of them to charge God with wrong and put him on trial. That's terrible. Yeah, hold that thought. We do it all the time. Yes, we do. We put God on trial. You know, sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. We know what's better for us. I know what God said, but hey, I can control my own life. We're calling the shots. That's how sin happens. We put ourselves on the throne of our own life as judge, even though we didn't create ourselves, even though, like God, who can see the uh, beginning from the end, we don't know that. We don't know where it's all going. But he does. We think we do. We think we know what's best. You see, all of us, myself included, I've, had, I've been in this position. We run into circumstances and... We may not say it out loud or think it out loud, but deep down we're saying God isn't doing a very good job with my life. Look at what's happening to me. One of his faithful, loving servants. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not doing a good job. We're putting him on trial. Just like they did criminal negligence. We put God on trial all the time, I think, when we don't get what we want or we don't get that answer to prayer like we expected or whatever it is. Instead of surrendering to God's will, we judge him as uncaring. (laughs) Instead of trusting him to take care of us, we resent him for allowing us. What we're doing is putting ourselves on the judgment seat. Listen to me. I've said this before. Get off that seat. There's no profit at all benefit in it. The the opposite thing to do, instead of being in that judgment seat, you surrender to his will, just like Jesus, and you trust him to take care of you and to, take, and to do right and to vindicate you. Not you, him. The second thing to take away from Mark chapter 14 when Jesus is on trial is to remember this. He's substituting himself for us to be judged in our place. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. Jesus even said he didn't come to judge us. He came to save us. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus does not come to bring judgment. He comes to bear our judgment. The blood of the Lamb saved my life. Blood of the Lamb that was shed for me and all who believe washes us from all our sins and lets us drink from the living water of his Holy Spirit when we believe in him. And Exodus 17 is a little foretaste, forepicture of what Jesus is going to do. Don't, don't forget that. That's the gospel. And if you believe, see, that Jesus died for your sins because he loved you, not because you're a good person, but because of his grace, I'm telling you, it will change your life. I'm not kidding. How? First, when you believe in Jesus, you're going to receive his Holy Spirit. He sends it right into our hearts. Read Romans 5. Why did he do that? So we'll know inside our hearts that God, will, that God loves us as his son and daughter. If you don't have his spirit, you won't know that. You'll stay in the judgment seat. Believing in Jesus is the trigger where God automatically seals us with his Holy Spirit. Inside, our internal witness, we belong to God now. Being conformed to the image of Jesus. Second, if you really believe the gospel, if you really believe that Jesus was judged in your place for your sins, you will stop judging others. <laughs> It'll change your life. But it's, you got to let this go deep. He saved you by grace. He forgave you by grace. And he loves you by grace. Not because you're perfect. Not because you don't ever make a mistake. It's because of Jesus. If you really understand the gospel that you're a sinner, saved by grace through your faith in Jesus, not because you deserve it, then you will stop being self-righteous and judgmental. Absolutely stop it. You cannot look at another person like that. If you've received and understand what Jesus has given you in grace, doesn't make sense, it's a contradiction, then you don't understand the gospel. Get out of the judgment seat because it rightly belongs to Jesus and give others undeserved grace, just like he gave you. That's the biblical principle. First, you receive the Holy Spirit. Second, stop judging others. How else does it change our life? If you really believe the gospel, that Jesus was judged in your place, you will forgive other people who have wronged you, like he has forgiven you. Have you ever said to yourself, yeah, I forgive them. I've forgiven them a hundred times. <laughs> but would you deep down really like to see something bad happen to them? Then you haven't forgiven them. Mm -mm. 
if you're holding it. That's the definition of bitterness. You are placing yourself in the judgment seat because you think you know what they deserve. And apparently God's not giving it to them. Well, I know what they deserve. Do you really? You got all knowledge, intimate knowledge of the other person. Do you really think you've got all that you need to know to get the judgment right? Without any ulterior selfish motives. Listen to me. Only God is qualified to sit in the seat that you put yourself in. If you don't forgive, tell you what will happen. I've seen it over and over again. I've experienced it myself. If you don't forgive, your heart will only become harder and harder, more miserable, more miserable. And you become blind to the truth of the gospel that saved you. Blind. And your only focus is you. How can we really forgive? It's hard, I know. Sometimes we have to, in our flesh, comes up again, the hurt, the stuff that happens to us. Well, you keep coming, coming to the throne. You look to Jesus. Um, and the Holy Spirit who gives us the grace to do the will of God every time. But if you look at Jesus, he had, listen to me, he had every right as judge of the world, every right to hold a grudge against his accusers and judges and also against you and me for the way we've offended him. Um, we failed him. He has every right to hold it against us. But he didn't. He forgave us. You and I do not have the right to pass judgment. We simply don't. We have an obligation, though, to love, to forgive, if we're going to follow Jesus. Fourth, if you really believe the gospel that Jesus was judged in your place, it means you finally will stop judging yourself. Yeah, that's what it means. It'll change your life. You'll stop it. Stop walking around, beating yourself up. You made a little mistake, or maybe even a big one. You're not perfect. See, when you beat yourself up, you are in the judgment seat again, judging yourself as being unacceptable, unapprovable. Hmm. That's not the gospel. <laughs> you're in the judgment seat of your own life. If your performance, this is what I, I've experienced this so many times. If your performance is good, you Conclude, you console yourself. I'm pretty good and acceptable. Feeling pretty good today. But if your performance isn't good, then you're going to wallow in it and beat yourself up over it. Wish this would have happened. I should have done this. I should have done that. You're in the judgment seat. 
Listen to me. The only person who has the right to sit in that seat is Jesus Christ himself. Nobody else. Not you, not your friend, not your employer, nobody. At infinite cost to himself, Jesus got out of that chair and took the beating for your sins. Your sins and failures fell on him. All of them. Now, as believers in Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us, not only do we not have the right to judge others, we don't even have the right to judge ourselves. Listen to it, 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. to Paul says to the Corinthians, You know, to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. I don't even examine myself. And he's talking about judging. Where I'm conscious of nothing against myself. I'm feeling pretty good. Yet, you know what? I'm still not acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord, not me. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then then each man's praise will come to him from God. Apostle Paul is saying, I don't care what you think of me. I don't get my self-image from your verdict. He said, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Listen, in my opinion, this is one of the most amazing statements in the New Testament. He's saying, I feel really good about myself today, but so what? That doesn't mean anything. Only God has the right to judge me down to my motives. Only him. And I'll receive his opinion. Now, for those who are in Jesus, uh, who believed in him, who believed the gospel, their judgment day is in the past, (laughs) at the cross. So we need to stop acting like we're still on trial or putting others on trial. It's never going to benefit us. Get out of the judgment seat. You know why? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Mark 14, Jesus is accused, arrested, put on trial, condemned to die. Jesus, the judge of the universe, was judged for our sins and offenses. Because Jesus was judged for us, those who believe in him will not come into judgment. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And those who believe in Jesus, who have received the gift of forgiveness and eternal life, need to step out of the judgment seat, trust all the judgment to the Son of God, the rightful judge, After all, that's what Jesus did when people were torturing and killing him unjustly. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. Peter says, to this, 
You were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. There wasn't any deceit found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, here's the key. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. By the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who stood in your judgment for our sins and offenses so that all who believe in him might be saved from your coming wrath. Help us to step out of the judgment seat when we're tempted to judge you or others or even ourselves for things that we don't like and entrust all judgment to you like Jesus did, surrendering our will, trusting you, the one who judges everyone righteously. Help us to do this, Lord. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.